Good morning. I give God thanks and praise for giving us just the right amount of life and um, energy to be here this morning, and I can get a privilege to be able to speak a word from him into your hearing as we prepare for another season of life for this week. Slide. Isaiah pens his prophecy during the 8th century. He speaks of judgment for Israel, speaking out against corruption and idolatry and injustice. And he mentions that the fall of Jerusalem is spending as they go through trials and tests, as God uses Assyria and later uh, Babylon in the way of exile. Next slide. And so as they prepare, the prophet says that they're going to be rooted up from their homeland and the things that they hold as familiar. And they are going to be transported on that great highway from Jerusalem to Babylonia, where they will live life and exist in the peace and comfort of God However, in the cities and towns of another nation. As we read the narrative from verses 1 to verse 30, from chapters 1 to 39, we get into chapter 40 and the tone changes. It is theology and poetry. Next slide. And the prophet says that they need to rejoice. The prophet says that They need to have a higher perspective. They need to conjure up good feelings and have a vision for the future that is radical, bold, inspiring, and filled with good things. Because the exile is about to be over and King Cyrus, that Persian king, is going to give the edict that God will use to announce that now the exiles can go home. This morning, I want to focus in on pain and the heartaches of life. This morning, I want to remind us of where we've been, not just with COVID, but in the past three weeks, we've had a memorial here every Saturday. Next slide, please. And before we get into our sermon, I would like us to pause. And if you can, stand as we remember the people that have gone before, not lost, but found in the presence of God. I'm thinking about Sister Lenora's son, Clifford, and Pat Black, and Carlos Miller, and all those names that you know and that you remember. At this point in time, before we go any further, I want us to refocus and use this moment to lament, to say we miss these people, these bodies, we, we miss the memories that we've created with them, but we know where they are. And before we go on to extrapolate this, we want to say we miss them and to own up to that and to confess that as a church. So take a few moments. Take a few moments to think and to call the names of the people that you've lost, the friends that you've lost, 
Maybe you are here from another state, from another town, from another zip code, and you've gone through loss. We want to acknowledge that this morning. And as a family say, we embrace that and we share your burden. So think of those people as we sang those songs to the memorials. Think of those faces and take a moment to reflect and to lament that they are no longer here with us. Dear Father, we give you thanks for this journey of life. We give you thanks for those that you have given us that are no longer here. We do appreciate the memories we have created with them, the example of faith, the example of mentorship. And as we revel in the idea that we will soon join them, Heavenly Father, help us to hold on to those memories, to not get weary and despondent, but to understand that we all go this way and we have all to do with the creator of life, the one who gives life after death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Next slide, please. <clears throat> when we speak of forts, your mind readily goes as an adult to that bastion of concrete filled with gunpowder and artillery, forts that are still scattered as relics of a past age on islands and uh, even in America uh, in certain places. We think of, you know, a place where there is strength, where you could launch an attack or where the walls are impregnable. But just for a moment, I would like us to recalculate and to understand the fresh meaning of fort as we seek to unpack the sermon title for this morning. Next slide, please. When I think of forts, I think of that place where, you know, we, we constructed this, this space for my friends with twigs or, or the sofa cushions or, you know, a big sheet that, you know, the kids would take and they would make this space that is really poorly built. But because of their imagination, it is a safe place. It is that place where you can only get in by a password, or knowing the secret, you know, handshake. It is a place where your parents can't see you, or the boogeyman can't get you. It's that place where everything possible occurs. And there is life, and there is light, and there is imagination. And this is the working definition of thought I would like us to use as we go through this sermon. Not really looking at what it is outside, but really what it represents to the persons that inhabit that fort. Next slide, please. Comfort. Comfort. Uh, better understood in the old 16th century language as comfort. A place where there is strength, a place where there is encouragement, a place where you are restored to that sense of security. Comfort. Come and build. Come and protect. Come and give life. Come and safeguard. Come forth. As we get into our text, next slide, please. We ask the question, will God come? Will God come? And if you're sitting there and you've lost someone, you've asked that question. And maybe you're still in the process of asking that question. Will God come? 
Arrive! Slide, please. We get to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 40. And in the opening, the word says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her heart service has been completed. The word comfort is spiritual. The word speak is spiritual. The word proclaim is spiritual because he's calling on his messengers, not just Isaiah, not just the disciples of Isaiah or Deuteronomy Isaiah, but he's calling on people who speak the word of God to speak this to his people coming out of exile. Come forth, sir. There's going to be hedge around you. Regardless of what's going on around you, what you've experienced, I am on my way. If you're a servant of God, speak this to God's people. A voice of one, verse three, calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. You know this text in Matthew, speaking about John the Baptist as he does his work to for Christ. However, that's where it starts. It starts with God, Jehovah, coming to his people. He says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together as a family. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You understand that God is arriving. He's on his way. As his people are being harshly treated. They have forgotten the way of God. They've been hurting. They have been given a season of repentance, of rebuilding. And he's saying, I have not forgotten you. I have not forgotten your name. I am coming to you. The people that have gone wayward, but also by application, the people that just live life. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust. So if you are in here and you are living, chances are, as the song says, you might have gone through some stuff or you are getting ready to go through some stuff because life happens. He says, comfort my people because I am coming. And there's this talk of a highway God has an agenda for his travel. And as the people remembered the images as they traversed from Jerusalem to Babylonia, the valley low and the mountains high, they understood the terrain, what it looked like, the difficulty of travel. And God imports this idea to say, you remember how impassable certain things look. Well, there's going to be an obliteration of obstacles. There's going to be a highway made where I could be connected, where I could come swiftly to my people in the time of need. Comfort my people. Make my way straight. The highway of the Lord. Nothing is going to stand in his way to get to us. All natural hindrances will be erased. And that highway connotates speed, connectivity to his people, and swiftness. As we go forth, we ask another question. Slide, please. He's also coming because of our questions. He's the arriving God that comes when things go wrong. 
He always takes the opportunity to be a consoler, a lover of our soul, a comforter. And as he comes, he knows you have questions. That's the, that's the thing I don't understand. Sometimes we are so put together and people look at us and we feel like we have all the answers when we know that we don't. He's coming because of our questions. What questions, you may ask? Let's go to Isaiah 40, verse 25. Slide, please. To whom will you compare me, the Lord asks? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. I don't care all the stars that you've seen burnt out or fallen, fallen stars, but God knows them. He knows where they are, and he knows the number. Well, if he could do that, what could he do for people? He asks, why do you complain, verse 27? Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My life my path, he does not see. My way is hidden. My cause is disregarded by my God. Now tell me you've never felt like that. Like God is not seeing, he's not hearing, and he's not feeling your pain. Tell me if you've never had those sentiments. I have. But I don't stay there. Because the narrative continues. Do you not know, verse 28, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. So these are your questions. Does God want to deliver us? Is, is, is it his desire? He does not see me. He doesn't even get me. Does he even desire to deliver us. And as an exile, sitting in the space that you don't own, that you did not grow up in, that somebody else's land, you're asking, how did we get so far? I thought we were God's people. I thought we were the chosen, the ones through which he would bring the promise. What are we doing here? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. And they are taunting us. Does God even desire to deliver us. But as I take a look out, I see the Babylonian gods set up, which leads to my second question in this text. Can he deliver us? Is he more powerful than the Babylonian gods? Or did they get the jump on him? Is he powerless? And also, will he deliver us? Should I put my hope in his arriving? It's a question about the future. So take these three big questions that we've just read. Does he desire to deliver? Is he powerful enough to deliver? And can I put my bet on that? Can I hedge my bet sin that he is on his way? You know, we ask those questions because we are unsure as to how God arrives and his agenda for arriving. Because we have been hindered by the experience of grief or the super self-confidence that we 
harbor sometimes. See, the arrival of comfort is often hindered by uninformed despair. And so you know that there are about five or six stages of grief. The idea of denial and drawing back or isolating. The idea of bargaining, you're just postponing facing sadness by imagining different scenarios. Well, if it did not happen like that, what would my life look like today? And then there's depression, of course. And then there is acceptance. And many times people get stuck in one of those stages, uninformed by the word of God, the comfort that is given us to speak. Sometimes the arrival of God's comfort can be hindered by self-confidence. We don't need God or his grace because we think we're good enough. Now, if you're taking a poll this morning and you're sitting here, do you think that you're a bad person? No! No one comes to church or, I should add, should come to church to feel like they're just the, the, the most miserable folk out there. But many people, when they come to church, they feel, I'm good enough. I'm okay. I'm not killing, stealing, robbing, or doing all those things. I'm not a politician, so I'm good. And so when we say we are living in the grace of God, it is hyperbole. It is just figurative, not actually getting into the reality of our life. So I'm living in God's grace. I don't really need it because, you know, I have a job. I'm a good human being. I bake pies. I'm good to my neighbors. I keep a job, you know, I'm all right. You don't think like you need God. And it is in this self-confidence that the devil breaks apart the word comfort, comfort. Because to know God is to know yourself. As in the words we just sang with Lauren Daigle, you say, say I'm strong. And I think that I'm weak. When we know that we're weak, Sometimes we don't want to even comment or concede that we're weak, that we need help. Do you know how hard it is to ask for help when you think that you're the sustainer of your life? Lauren Daigle says, I can't do it by myself. I need God. If you have a healthy sense of who you are, then you can grow. But if you feel that you're all grown up, then there's no room to grow. And there's no room for God's word to find lodging in your life. The arrival of God's comfort can and oftentimes look very different than we expect. And so last week I heard Brother Daryl speak of his son who had been waiting on a kidney. And the kidney came and we cheered and we said, thank you God, glory be to God, because God's comfort came in the form of a kidney. For a man who now has a new lease on life. That's one scenario of how God's comfort comes. Next slide, please. I remind you of my friend, Charles Kosovi, who died of cancer recently. And that's Charles, one Christmas with his two daughters. And they seem like they're having a great time. But you know how the story goes. Cancer comes, his body is riddled with it, and at one point, his kidney is failing. And so he dies, and he leaves his wife and his daughters and his son. And you're asking, 
And his wife is asking, and the family is asking, where is the comfort that you speak of, God? Where is the comfort? Where is the rock of strength? Where is the fortress that you speak of? And I'm so glad you asked that question. Next slide, please. Because after the pain and after the darkness, his kids have found their smile again. The mom has found life again because she knows where her husband is. He has given them the aspect of faith to live and breathe into the comfort of God. And so this is a recent picture of his kids. After having lost their dad, well, not lost because they know where he's at. They found their smile again. That's what it looks like for God's comfort to come even in death, even when there's no kidneys coming. That's what it looks like. People can still smile through because they know. It's not a dictionary meaning. It's not a theory. They are living it. They're smiling through it. Comfort came as I talked to Keith this week. Keith was minding his own business, Keith Stefanko, and somebody plows at the back of his vehicle. He tries to help out the guy because he's a nurse, but the guy passes away. As I speak to Keith, Last Sunday, even trying to figure out how he's doing. You know what Keith said? He prays for comfort for the family who's lost this young man. Comfort looks like Christians who actually pray and they mean it for others, for God to arrive in their life. I remind you of my friend, Susan Feeney Magoo from Northwest Arkansas, who passed away a couple of weeks ago from COVID on a ventilator, married for about six or seven months. Her husband makes a post, not knowing a lot of her friends from school, that in the short time that he was with Susan, it was the best years of his life. Comfort came to a man with a renewed energy of what love looks like, a renewed experience of what love looks like, because there are some people who are married for 50 years and have never really found out or experienced what love is. They have a lot of life, but no love. Next slide, please. And as I remember the example of Susan's husband, I think of this movie we saw um, a few weeks ago. My family and I, we have Friday movie nights. The gentleman with the sword, the young guy with the sword, he goes on a quest to find the water man because his mom, Rosario Dawson, the character, she's dying of cancer. So he starts in the library. He checks out every single book that he can find concerning that particular cancer. He takes notes. And then he's trying to inform the caregivers of the medicine that they should treat his mom with. But he employs the services of the young lady below him, and they set up to the woods to find the waterman. And in the travel and just the angst of the situation, they get to a point in the movie where she looks at him, and she says, you were looking for a waterman, someone to give your mom life. You are here in the forest, up and down, running, wasting time when you should be spending it with your mom. If you so care about your mom and time with your mom, why are you running in the forest chasing a dream when she's there at home waiting for you to spend quality time? And it dawned on me dawned on me, as the father said in the end, with no resolution to the cancer, by the way. They are sitting at table to dinner and they're having a great time. 
He says, I'd rather have a short life with you full of love than a long life without love. I'd rather have a short life with you full of love than a long life without love. And I see people trying to hold on to life. Not a quality of life, but just life. You can live, but never live. You can be alive, but never live. And that should not be a way Christians seek to live. If all this going on, kids are observing, and kids are leaving churches, not because there is a rogue professor in an Ivy League corner of school saying, you should not believe in Christianity because of these philosophical reasons. When the kids look at us, they don't see us living in the comfort of God. When they look at us, they know it doesn't work. It doesn't change your relationships, your habits. And so why should I invest my time and my life and my youth in something that does not work for you? They're not going to do it. So instead of talking to kids about culture and philosophy, why don't we live in faith so that they could see and observe what living in the comfort of God looks like? Next slide, please. What will be the aftermath of his arrival? I don't want to take too much of the time this morning, but I do want to get to this point. What will be the aftermath of God's arrival? We know for the exile, it is everyone packing up their caravans and families, kids, moms, dads, children, all together making that journey back to the place, the familiar place. What will be the aftermath of God's arrival? A joint experience for all God's people. A joint experience for all God's people. One man said, so eloquently, we are not a church of families. We are not a church of families. Not like Israel represented by one tribe, Judah or Benjamin or Manasseh or the Johns or the High Towers or whatever. We are not a church of families. We are not a church for families. Well, we need to have a two-parent household, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No. We are a church for all people. Families of two, four, eight bachelors like Paul, women like Mary Magdalene, and the lady who had gone through five husbands, and she was still not considered damaged goods by our Lord, an Ethiopian eunuch. We are a church for everyone. We are a family. We are a family. The designation is the description, and the description is the designation. The symbolic represent of 12 tribes, all peoples of all nations, of all cultures, all tongues, expected to share. Expected to share. Not to hide, not to pretend, not to gloss over, but to share the highs and the lows. To share the reality. Families go through stuff. But in times of crises, they come together, or at least they should. They should if they're the family of God. And so as we wind down, I want to invite the church to experience the comfort of God in a supernatural way. Because I will not begin to say what God will or he will not do. He is God all by himself. And I know you have your stories. I know you have your runnings with the Spirit. And I love it because God is still active and at work in our society. 
in the hearts who still believe. So he's coming to us. He's comforting us. He's traveling, doing supernatural things, but he's also partnering with the church, whereby through us he brings comfort. So I'm listening to Dave sing those songs for the memorials and people giving the eulogy and people sharing food and memory. And I'm thinking, yes, comfort is arriving because the church is coming together and supporting one another. Give comfort. Live in such a way to arrive with the God of comfort who galvanizes our life, our emotion, our being in the peace of his fort, the providence and the sustenance of his love, and all-encompassing power. So this is not a rehearsal. This is not a one-man army. If you're in here, you need the person next to you, in the side, in the front, and in the back. And that all begins with, number one, acknowledging where our comfort comes from, and number two, acknowledging our need for it. So here's how this plays out. You might not be going through anything today, but you just wait. You just live long enough, and you will have something, and you are not born or perfected to go through it by yourself. We need our family. Your kids, take a good long look at them. They need you to properly represent Christianity or else they are gone. And it's not because of the boogeyman or of someone who is just warped them with these philosophies. It's because they look at us and they say, eh, God doesn't work for you. He's not going to work for me either. Don't lie to your kids. Be respectful of the innocent. Be respectful of their soul. And give them something God has given you, and if you haven't gotten anything from God, then you can't give anything. And so I would invite you to stand one more time as we bring this to a close. If you can, if you can, if your limbs are good enough, last slide. This is the aftermath of comfort coming to God's people. This is the aftermath of comfort meeting the exiles in their worst pains and in their worst days. This is the word from God to everyone, even us, standing here today. He gives strength to the weary. Can you say amen to that? And increases the power of the weak. Amen? I'm not fishing for amen because these amens are to God and the confirmation that he will do what he says he will do. You grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who what? Who hope. Say it with me. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their... Say it like you mean it. This is not to me. This is to your God. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar and not grow. They will and not be. So I'm thinking of Miss Janice back there, thinking of Lenora, thinking of Pat Black's wife, everyone who've lost, or not really lost, but who have, who's have, have gotten their loved one found in the presence of God. I want to say to you that 
We love you, and we will never, ever make your memory go away as we support you, as we share your burdens. Comfort, comfort my people with these words. The church is a family, and as we wait for the God of comfort, we do what family do. We support. When it's good, we say, thank you, Lord. When it's bad, we say, thank you, Lord, because there's nothing that's going to remove us from the love of God that has been bought for us in Christ. The church says, Amen. if you have any need for prayer or for comfort, the avenue is available. Come as we stand. We're already standing as we sing.